1 Corinthians 15, what a chapter. Let's pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank you for your word, for your inspired, infallible, inerrant word to us that has lasted through all of these centuries, that it is a letter that was written especially to all of us people so that we would know you, know your promises, and know our futures. We thank you and I pray for your anointing on this time. I ask for your anointing on the teaching and I ask for your anointing on the listening that we will comprehend what you're saying to us in this precious chapter. So be with us and take complete control. Guide our thinking, our speaking, guide our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians 15 is the longest chapter in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Through the Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit has given us great and important truths, and he began with a simple statement of the gospel, back up there in verse 3, saying, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. A lot can happen in three days. That is the essence of the gospel. And then he went on to give a record of the witnesses who saw the risen Christ. He gave lists of people. He gave a list of, of occurrences of the appearance of the risen Christ. And then finally he said, he appeared to me also. Now we know that was a good bit later than the 40 days that Jesus walked on earth after the resurrection. But Paul says, he appeared to me. And you remember the great experience that Paul had on the Damascus Road. Then Paul went on to address the confusions and the doubts and the questions that the Corinthians were having about the resurrection. You remember that he wrote this book to a church that was struggling. It was confused. It had some uh, bad influences, some bad teaching. And so he's writing to correct a lot of things. And so this chapter... We've been in it for several weeks now, but it's tucked in here still to answer some of their questions and to give them some correction. So he affirms the reality of the resurrection and he explains that the primary proof of physical resurrection is the physical bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Now, remember when we started this chapter, we said the Corinthians believed that Jesus had risen. They believed in the resurrection of Jesus, but they couldn't quite get it that their own bodies would one day be raised. And so Paul explains and he says, you know, the fact that Christ is risen is indication that there's more to come. He is the first fruits. But he also tells us that if Christ didn't rise, the gospel is useless. So you're always going to have those groups of people. You're going to have those skeptics, those who say that Christ did not rise. You're going to have those who say, oh, yes, I know that Christ arose, but I don't know about me. And then you're going to have those others who think that, well, yes, we're going to rise too. But remember that the Jews thought that the same body that was in the ground would rise just like it was when it went in. 
It would just be a preserved body and the same body would come right back out. Um, so, uh, and then you had uh, the Corinthians with that Greek thought that thought the body, the physical body was an evil thing and they didn't want any part of it. They didn't want one back. And so Paul's addressing all kinds of thoughts and all kinds of issues here. But he says that the fact that Christ is risen is key to the gospel. And that is what makes Christianity different from any other faith, from any other religion. And so he went on then to show us the order of the resurrection. We spent a good bit of time looking at that. You'll remember that the order of the resurrection is that Christ was first. He is the first fruits, which means there's going to be more to come. Then there's the church, uh, the body of Christ at the rapture. He says that it is Christ's at his coming. So that is that is the whole church, the people who have um, been saved during the church age. And then the tribulation saints and the Old Testament saints will be raised at the end of the resurrection. And then we've got the resurrection of unbelievers. Unbelievers will be raised as well at the end of the millennium to appear before the great white throne judgment and answer for their sins. Those are people who have chosen to pay for their sins themselves instead of letting Christ pay for them. So Paul has talked about the value of the resurrection. He said, what does the resurrection do for us? Well, it gives us hope and it gives us a desire to please God because we know we're going to see him. We know we're going to stand before him uh, at, at the judgment seat of Christ to receive rewards for, the, for our stewardship of the life that the Lord has given to us once we've been saved. And so he says the, the resurrection has daily value to us. It's not just the hope of something that's going to happen in the future. Then he gave us information about our resurrection bodies, what those are going to be like. And that takes us all down through verse 49 in chapter uh, 15. We saw last week that he described the resurrection body. We talked about, um, you know, the fact that you have a seed and the life essence in that seed is the same life essence that that seed dies and is sown in the ground. And then there's a plant that looks totally different, but it's the same life essence. And so we come then to verse 50. And so he begins by re-emphasizing some truth, and then he crescendos into this glorious praise. So let's look at it. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 50. He says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, or King James Bible says incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. Now, in our last session, we took a look at the believer's resurrection body. And we saw that there are bodies that are designed for earth living, 
and there are bodies designed for heaven living. And believers are going to be changed. It is absolutely essential. And so our earthly body that is like the body that Adam and Eve had is going to be changed into a glorified eternal body like the one Christ had after he was risen from the dead. There will be that change. We cannot enter the heavenly realm with bodies that we have that are designed for earth. And so we must, notice the word must, we must be changed. And so even Christ's human earthly body had to be changed. It had to be transformed. It was transformed at his resurrection. Uh, let me show you right quick uh, Philippians uh, chapter 3 for just a minute because the scripture, all of scripture is just full of this thought. First uh, Corinthians, I'm sorry, uh, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. Paul says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has given to subject all things to Himself. So here in verse 50, of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul reminds us again that the resurrection body will not be flesh and blood. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now, kingdom of God is used in different ways in Scripture, and right here it's being used referring to God's eternal kingdom. We are the kingdom of God on earth, but this particular reference has to do with God's eternal kingdom in which place we will have to be changed into that which is not perishable. And so the human body as we have it now is perishable. Um, it cannot inherit, this body cannot inherit the imperishable. It just can't consume and it can't take it. So the body's got to be completely changed. It is sown a perishable, perishable body. Look back up there in verse 42. We saw it last time. So, as is, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. And so that's the, that's the change that's going to have to take place. So the identity is continued, just like that seed becoming a plant. They look totally different, same life essence. And so just like a seed that's planted, the identity is continued. You will still be you, I will still be me, but it is, we will be transformed into a very different form, like the transformation from a seed to a plant. That new body will be imperishable, glorious, powerful, and spiritual. It will be like the body of Christ. Now, Paul perceives that the Corinthians were asking a question. They had lots of questions, which is what prompted the writing of this letter. But here's the question that was kind of floating, and it's not unlike us. And so they were saying, well, what about the Christians that are living when Christ comes? So they're afraid that the only way this is going to happen is for you to be dead. 
So they're worried about the people that are still alive when Jesus comes and they're just saying, well, what about them? And so the Holy Spirit, as he was breathing God's word through Paul, knew too that readers all through the centuries would be asking some of these same questions. So these answers are for us as well as for the Corinthians. And so basically the question is, what happens if, if you haven't died yet when Christ comes? What's going to happen? Well, think about the fact that 1 Corinthians was probably written around the year 55 AD. So that's going to be just over 20 years since Christ had died and had risen. And so there are going to be a lot of Corinthians are alive that knew about that. And so they would have seen that. They would have witnessed that. They would have had probably some conversation, some contact with the apostles, with some of these other people that he named that had seen the risen Lord. And so um, they believed that Christ would return. I mean, they got it that Christ was who he said he was and that he was he died on the cross for our sins, that he was buried and that he was raised from the dead by God the Father. They got that part. That's the essence of salvation. And Paul calls them brethren. So we know they got that part, but they were just looking for more information. It was like, is there more here? So so what's going to happen if when Christ comes, if we're still here? If we're still walking on the earth, then what? Well, look at verse 51, because Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. Now, that's an interesting phrase, because what he's really saying is, let me give you some information. Let me give you some information that you've not had yet. Now, the word mystery here refers to something that has been previously hidden, but now is told. Uh, God has secrets and a lot of times uh, God doesn't share his secrets, all of his secrets with everybody all the time. There are some secrets that he shares with his people. Um, that's an interesting study to do if you want to track that through scripture. But um, there are some things that you just haven't heard yet. It's not really a secret, but it hasn't evolved. And this is information that was not given in the Old Testament. So nobody has ever heard this until the New Testament. And so Paul, that's why he calls it a mystery. And so what does he say? He says, um, verse 51, here's the mystery. Here's what I'm about to tell you that you've not been told before. We shall not all sleep. Now that word sleep means die, dead. We shall not all die but we shall all be changed. So he immediately says, get this, you're going to be changed even if you haven't died. That's the first step that he takes here. It's necessary that we be changed because the perishable must put on the imperishable form. We don't take what we've got to heaven. What we've got here is temporary. It's what is on this earth. But we don't have to die or sleep is the term he uses, uses here for our bodies to be changed. Now, remember how capable God is, 
how powerful God is, how creative God is. And so God's not dependent on anything. And he's not depending on our being dead for us to be changed. So whether we die or are raptured when Christ comes, then uh, our bodies are going to be changed from this natural perishable body to the spiritual imperishable, bo imperishable body. So he says then, verse 53, let's see, verse 52, let me start in 51, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, that's fast. That is really fast. He says it's going to happen in the twinkling of the eye. Now, I read a good bit of stuff, all of these um, theories about what that means. And it's pretty general consensus that it's faster than a blink. Faster than that. That it really is referring to the time it takes light to get from your uh, iris to your retina. I don't know how fast that is. There are people that want to measure it in nanoseconds. That is fabulous. If you can do that kind of science and that kind of math, I just need to know that is really fast. It's faster than we can, can imagine. It is instantaneous. It's not a process. So all of a sudden, boom, our spirits are going to be dressed in a body that is imperishable that is a glorious resurrection body, a body that has been changed. Well, when is that going to happen? He says it will happen when the last trumpet sounds. Now, um, that probably is not the last trumpet that will ever be sounded in all of the future. Think not. But what he's talking about here is that this is a trumpet that will sound the end of the church age, the end of the church age. The church age began at Pentecost, when the church was born, when the Holy Spirit came to indwell the believers. That was the church. That's the birthday of the church. Now that is continuing to go on even through our day, and the church age will end when Christ comes to get the church and to take us home. So that's the church age. The church has a special place in history, a special place in God's heart. And so it's going to happen when that trumpet sounds to end the church age. Now, there's another reference to this that's really interesting, and I want to share this with you. You will remember that this same reference uh, to this event is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Just go ahead and turn there with me. Now, here's what I want you to know about this. 1 Thessalonians was probably written three or four years before 1 Corinthians. So the Thessalonians already knew something about this. And so I want us to compare these two scriptures for a moment because they're the same, but they answer different questions. And so the Thessalonians had a different question from the Corinthians. Now, the Corinthians, remember, are asking, what's going to happen to people who are alive when he comes? The Thessalonians knew about the rapture and they were afraid that dead people would miss it. So the Corinthians are afraid that live people are going to miss the transformation. 
The Thessalonians are afraid that the dead people are going to miss it. So Paul deals with both of them. Watch this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 15. He says, For we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. No, Thessalonians, they're not going to be left out. They will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together that's where we get our word raptured, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. So Thessalonians, get this. You don't have to worry about those who have already died. They're going first. Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, you don't have to worry about those who are still alive. Look at verse 54. Verse 53 says, well, let me just back up. You know how I got to go get the whole thing. Verse 51. But I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound same trumpet as in Thessalonians, and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. We see incredible victory right here. And we need to camp out here for just a second. So what we know now is that whether we are dead or alive, when Christ comes, we all are going to experience transformation. We all are going to receive a body that is a new body because it, it is an imperishable, eternal, glorious resurrection body. Everybody, every believer, every believer. So verse 54 when, when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that's written, death is swallowed up in victory. The great victory comes when the great transformation comes. It's over. Done. Now, Paul quotes Isaiah 25, 6 through 8. And Hosea 13, chapter 14. If you want to read that later, uh, you can go back. But that's what Paul's referring to. He's just quoting Isaiah when he says, uh, Where, O death, is your victory? Where is your sting? De death is swallowed up in victory. Now let's talk about death for a minute. 
even though we know all of this as believers, we don't like death. We don't like it. We try to avoid it. We try to mask it. It devastates us. It breaks fellowship with people that we love. And even though we may know, know that they're in heaven with the Lord, they're not with us. That is painful. That is grief. And so death can interrupt all kinds of unfinished business. So there is no getting around it. And so let's just know that in spite of the victory that we know is coming in this life, death is an enemy. And so when this imperishable will put on the imperishable and this mortal body will have put on immortality, death is swallowed up. Gone. The end. It is undone. It is completely obliterated. It's not toned down. It's not locked up. It is done away with. It is erased. And verse 56 explains what he said in verse 55. What did he say in 55? Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And then he says, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. I want us to get that. I want us to get that. Sin is what makes death have its power. If it were not for sin, death would not have any power at all. How do we know that? The wages of sin, what does sin cost you? Sin costs you death. The wages of sin is death. And so without sin, without unforgiven sin, without unforgiven sin, death has no real power. The presence of unforgiving sin makes death eternally deadly. I'm going to say that again because I want you to think about it. The presence of unforgiven sin makes death eternally deadly. Death's only weapon against us is sin. As long as we have sin, unforgiven sin, then death can look up, look us in the eye and say, I'm coming after you. Unforgiven sin gives him that privilege. Now, why does death have no power or sting for the Christian? What is Paul saying here? Listen to me. Because Christ removed your sin. Now hear me. When Christ died for our sins, he cleansed past sins, present sins, and future sins. All sins in the life of a believer are forgiven. There is no unforgiven sin in the life of a person who has given his life to Christ. A person who has come in faith. Then he says the power of sin is the law. What is that? God's law reveals 
God's standards of holiness. And when the laws are broken, our sins are revealed. Um, the smallest, the smallest unforgiven sin has the power to kill the soul eternally. Teeny sin. Remember that because we are born in the image of Adam, we can't help but sin. It's our nature. We're born with that sin nature. And when I am two years old, I'm going to stomp my foot and say, no, I didn't do that. Nobody had to teach me when I was two to do that. My mom and daddy had to teach me not to do that. But it's inherent in us because why? We're born with that sin nature. We're born with unforgiven sin. And so when we look at God's law and we say, well, have you ever coveted your neighbor's good? Yep. Well, uh, have you ever had, um, you know, thoughts of killing somebody or just wanting to stomp them good? Well, yep. You know, that's all you need. And it could, that could be my only sin at all. But any tiny sin that is unforgiven sin will send our souls to eternal death. Death being separation from God. So let's be sure that we understand what we mean by unforgiven sin. You know, we can stand here and think, oh, well, you know, uh, I sinned against um, <clears throat> Lucy Jane over here. She's never forgiven me, so that's unforgiven sin. Or maybe I've got some sins that I've not confessed to the Lord. And um, those would be unforgiven sin. Any Unforgiven sin is sin that has not been placed under the cleansing blood of Jesus. Now, when we come to Christ for salvation, when we bow before him and we say, I believe that you are the son of God. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. I believe I am a sinner. I know I'm a sinner and that you died to pay that sin debt for me. When I come to him in faith, then he's going to save me. When I come to him believing that, then he's going to save me by his grace and he is going to erase all of my sin. Old sin, present sin, new sin, future sin. You know why? Because that's the power of the blood of Jesus. And so sin that has not been placed under the cleansing blood of Jesus is unforgiven sin. Now look at verse 57. What has he just said? You know, I got to go back. Verse 54, but when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death. That means he can taunt it a little bit. Death, where's your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is. Christ never broke one of God's holy laws. Didn't even think about it. Christ was perfect in every way. He was not born with a sin nature. 
He was born God. God was his father. Adam wasn't his father. God, Jesus inherited God's nature, not the nature of Adam. And so Christ's perfect sacrifice on the cross, his death paid the penalty for every law ever broken, past, present, and future. You know, sometimes we get it in our minds that after I'm saved and I sin, that I need to worry about those sins. What do those sins do? They interrupt my fellowship with God. They don't interrupt my relationship. When I'm born of God, I am eternally born of God. And I am programmed for all of the things in the future to happen to me that are according to God's plan. The resurrection body, all of that. And so when I sin, it's going to interrupt my fellowship. It may interrupt my fellowship with other believers. It may interrupt my fellowship um, with my church. It will interrupt my fellowship with God. But it will not cause my relationship with God to be changed. See, there are some people who believe that if you have uh, some sin in your life when you die, then you will not go to heaven. Now, let me tell you, if that were true, then salvation would not be by the grace of God as a gift of God. It would be on my own merit. And the Bible just shouts from cover to cover. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot be perfect. We can never undo our sin. We can never be perfect enough to pay for our own sin. There had to be a perfect sacrifice that would appease God. Because when, when the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, he died to pay the whole tab of all sin for all time, for all people. Now, if I place my sin on him, if when I go to Jesus, I say, I'm yielding my life to you. I'm placing my sin on you. If I place my sin on him, then my sin is paid for and death has no more sting. So, you know, the simple thing here is what I've kind of said before. I can choose to pay for my own sin or I can let the debt that's already been paid be my payment for my sin. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who has triumphed over sin and death. And he is the one who will give us the great transformation of our bodies. The Lord Jesus Christ did for us what we could not do for ourselves. If I try to pay for my own sin, then it's going to take me a whole eternity of death to pay for it. He is the one who has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. We cannot live sinlessly. I cannot go through a day without there being some sin in my life, in my thoughts, maybe in my behavior. We cannot remove our own sin. I cannot wash my own sin 
You've seen pictures of people through the years, through history, of trying to wash their hands of something. You may can wash your hands, but you can't wash your heart. So I can't remove my own sin once I've committed it. And I cannot escape death and remove its consequences on my own. So I can't do any of that. But Christ has stepped up and done that for me. That is his gift. He lived sinlessly. He can remove sin. And he conquered death. And so he says, if you will come. That's our invitation from him. Come to me. If you will come to me, give me your sin. Give me your life. Believe that I am the Lord Jesus Christ and that God raised me from the dead. Buy into that with your life. Change your thinking about that. That's repentance. Buy into that. Change your life. Give me your life. And then he says, I'm going to write your name in the Lamb's book of life. And out there where there's that, maybe there's a column that says debt, I'm going to write paid. Paid in full. And then he says, I'm going to put my perfect righteousness by your account. So here goes my name on the Lamb's Book of Life, Sharon Sewell. And next to that, sinless, perfectly righteous. And Jesus is winking, saying, because I gave that to you. It's a gift. It's a gift. He says, I will write your name in the Lamb's book of life. I will put my perfect righteousness to your account. And I will resurrect your spirit in the moment that that happens. See, for those of us who are already saved, already Christians, our spirits have already been brought back to life. How come? I was born dead in my spirit because I was born in Adam. When I come to Christ, he resurrects my spirit. And when this physical body either dies or when Christ comes, then this body is going to be changed to match my resurrected spirit. So that this body, I will have a clothed spirit. I'm not going to be just a spirit floating around out there somewhere. We're going to be clothed. For, so, so a Christian's death has no more power because why? Because Christ has taken away sin. Never, ever forget that that's the foundational thought here. The fact that he has taken away our sin is what means death means nothing. Means nothing. For Christians, physical death is the passing of our spirits from this life to heaven. We leave earth to be present with Christ. Our spirits go there immediately to be Absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And then remember, my body's going to be asleep, waiting until Jesus calls it and says, come here, be changed. In the twinkling of the eye, it won't take that long. We won't have time to think about it. He doesn't have to think about it. I just have to take you to Revelation chapter 20.
Revelation chapter 20 and verse 14. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, annihilated. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Why? Because he chose to pay for his own sins. He chose death instead of choosing to accept the debt, the paid in full that Christ has given to us. Chapter 21, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea, no separation. And I saw the holy city. New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. Verse 4, And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain for the first things have passed away. Back to 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, knowing all of this, be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Our assurance and our thankfulness about all of this truth is going to make us steadfast and immovable regarding the word of God. We're going to Stay there. We're going to endure because our focus is going to be on him and our assurance is going to be in the fact that this is God's inspired, infallible, inerrant word. Always abounding, he says, in the work of the Lord. The question is, how can we take it easy? How can we sit and watch while so many around us are spiritually dead? How can we sit and watch when the body of Christ is suffering, when there are believers who need to be taught, when there are believers who need encouragement, when there are believers who need edification and help? While I was working on this chapter, I couldn't help but think through Handel's Messiah. That's probably one of the most familiar, most um, commonly performed Christian music works there has ever been. I kind of reviewed some of the writing of that. It's fascinating, and I just wish you were here with me, and we'd just sit down and listen to the whole thing. But a man named Charles Jennings 
compiled the text. And then George Frederick Handel took the text and in 24 days wrote the music to go with the text. What an incredible experience that must have been. And at the end of the manuscript, there's still, you can see some pictures of it. Handel wrote SDG, standing for Sole Deo Gloria, to God alone the glory. And so when he had written it, he looked at his servant and he said, I think I did see all of heaven before me. Now think about the Messiah with me. It's written in three parts. The first part's what we call the Christmas section. The second part is the passion section. And the third part is the resurrection section. And so he begins part three with, I know that my Redeemer liveth. It's all scripture lifted out. And he, they get that, for, the writer got that, compiled that from Job. I know that my Redeemer liveth and he shall stand in the last days upon the earth and though worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God. And then the next was, since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, in Christ shall all be made alive. Then it sings, behold, I tell you a mystery. We just got that. We shall all be changed. The trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. Then, O oh death, where is thy sting? Thanks be to God. If God is for us, who shall be against us? And then, Revelation chapter 5, verse 11. John said, And I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing, every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. When Handel got to the end of writing the Messiah, that's the last great chorus. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and witness and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Amen.